Let's look together at the Word of God, and the Word of God is found in the Sermon on the Mount where we've been for three or four months now. We're nearing the end, and we, we come to a series of warnings made by Jesus that require us to discern and to judge. The last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, the last third of that sermon is all about judging. God's judgments, our judgments, your judgments, my judgments, the judgments that we should make. And be very aware that, that you cannot go through life as, as Alfred E. Newman, the, the little cartoon character in Mad Magazine who went everywhere and said, what me worry, what me worry. You are not allowed to do that and I'm not allowed to do that as Christians. We are called not to say it's all good, but to say there is good and there is bad. It's fundamental to the Christian life that we make judgments because God is a judge. And so as we follow him, as we embrace him as our Father and our God, and as we seek to be holy as he is holy, we must make judgments. Holiness requires judgment. So look with me at Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, and if you're able to stand, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruit. The word of the Lord. Please be seated and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will speak to us through your word, that you'll illuminate it by your Holy Spirit as as we look at it so that it penetrates our hearts, so we understand it with our minds. May the words of my lips, Father, the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I remember the first days that I was a pastor in what is now known as Christ the Word Church. Back then it didn't have a name. Back then it really existed as a group of of men who had come together, leaders who had uh, a vision, I'd say, an idea, but more than an idea, a vision, a hope from God on a a church that we we believed God would use, use us to bring together. It was an an estimable group of men, worthy of esteem. It was a group of men that I respected and admired. I had spent 13 years as a pastor prior to the coming together of this group, and I had been a part of many board meetings prior to that, elder board meetings and board meetings, and and yet when this group came together, which proved to be the elder board of the new church, I was 40 years old and scared, scared. Scared. I remember sitting in board meetings with these men, all of whom were friends, none of whom I distrusted, but sitting in the elder board meeting, moderating the elder board as the, as the chairman of the board, uh, guiding us through the meeting. And, and I don't know if others saw it, but my, my fingers, I could see, were trembling because I was scared. I was, I was not aware of how to work with a group of real leaders, and I was afraid they would see through me as a leader. I was afraid of being of being judged as a leader by these men who I respected so much and who were such great leaders. 
It's been the gift of God to Christ the Word to allow us to have many such leaders in our men and our women. We are a church that has been blessed with leaders. Jesus is speaking now about leadership and how crucial, how vital it is that we have leaders who are men after God's own heart rather than men whose hearts go their own way. What you see on the news in America today is the consequence of a nation that has lost its leadership. Leadership has died and everyone does what's right in his own eyes. No one has said to our country, life is worth something. Not just the life that's threatened by COVID, but the life that's threatened in the womb and the life that's threatened on the city street is worth something. No one is saying to those who are marauding and running through the towns and cities causing havoc that their life is worth something, that their lives matter, and that their lives matter so much that this sin is an offense against God and a denial of the validity and the value of their lives. We don't have leadership. The Bible says that God gives us leaders we deserve that the leaders we have are those who reflect us. And this is where we are as a nation. Jesus is warning the people at the end of his sermon to watch out for the leaders that they follow. Beware, he says, beware of the false prophets. Beware, do not be blithely unaware, wandering through life saying, let me worry, let me worry, everything's good, but understand that leadership matters and that the most important decisions you and I will make in life are the leaders that we follow. Now, some of those decisions aren't made for us, but we know how influential it is as God makes the decision of where we are placed in a home. The mother and father that we follow characterizes all of life, influences everything we do and are. And it remains true throughout life that the leadership, and as we grow, we become men and women who embrace leadership. We have a choice in the matter, unlike when we're born. The choices we make, the paths we follow, as we choose our leaders, are the paths that are going to be the paths of either blessing or curse. It's that simple. This is why we say to our children, make sure that you know that the person you marry loves the Lord. If you're a a woman, make sure that your husband-to-be is a man that you can follow. If you're a man, make sure that the woman you're going to marry is a woman who can lead the household in the paths of righteousness. The wives we marry, the husbands, the churches we join, the people we choose to lead our lives in fellowship with, and the leadership that we embrace in so doing, the pastors, those whose teaching we sit under, the elders, those whose lives we emulate, those who are called to guard and guide the flock of Christ. These are the critical decisions of our lives. These are the most important decisions we make in many ways. Now Paul writes, speaking of prophets, what is a prophet? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, and he's reflecting the speech of Jesus here. He knows what Jesus has said. He writes in 1 Corinthians 11 that God has appointed for the benefit of his church, first of all, apostles, Second, prophets, third, teachers, workers of miracles, and he goes on down through a list. 
but it begins with prophets, then he says second, the prof- it begins with apostles, and then second, the apostles, third, teachers, and so on. So in our day, this day, not the day of Paul, the supreme gift in the church is the gift of prophecy. And I say this because the apostolic calling was limited, limited to 12 men and then a 13th added as one born out of time. Paul says that about himself. Paul himself was added to the number of the apostles, but that gift is not an ongoing gift. It's a gift that ended with the, with the end of those lives of the 12 men and Paul. A prophet is thus the chief and foremost calling in the church today. A prophet is a man or a woman who does not simply teach the word of God, but who applies the word that is taught to human lives. In the Old Testament, prophets were men and occasionally a woman who were sent with a message from God. They did not simply teach the word of God, they applied the word of God. Sometimes they were sent to foreign nations, Jonah and Nineveh. Far more often they were sent to the people of God, the Israelites. They differed from the priests and the Levites who were called to be the teachers of the law to the people of Israel and who were stationed in Levitical cities throughout the land of Israel in that the prophets were called to apply the word of God. The Levites and the priests were to teach the word of God and the prophets did much teaching, but they exceeded and surpassed the teachers in that they were were uniquely called to apply that word. So the 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 Levitical orders, the priests, the Levites, the scribes, would teach people, thou shalt not commit adultery. It was their responsibility to make sure that everyone in Israel understood, thou shalt not commit adultery. They were to tell people, they were to warn people. But when the king commits adultery, as King David did with Bathsheba, It's not a priest who goes, it's not a Levite who is sent, but God raises up a prophet, Nathan, who is sent to the king, not just to say thou shalt not commit adultery, but to say you are the man, you're the one who's done it, David. This is the work of prophecy. There are teachers in the church, and theirs is a high calling. In the time of the Reformation, the Reformation church had several offices, They they had those who were called to be pastors, they had those who were called to be, and the pastors were always thought of as the elders. There were the, the, the deacons, there were the, the doctors of the church, they're called. And those men, the doctors of the church, were called to teach theology, to teach the Bible. But they were less than the pastor who was not only called to teach, but to prophesy and to go from teaching to applying. This has always been the case And throughout time, it will remain that prophecy is the primary calling for leaders of Christ's church. Throughout the Protestant world, and really in the Catholic world as well, although there's a different hierarchy to the order in the Catholic world, the preaching of the word of God is understood to be prophecy. This was the attitude, this was the belief of all our fathers and mothers in the faith. They viewed preaching as surpassing teaching because it combined pedagogy with exhortation, teaching with a call to action. And so the doctors of the church taught, but the pastors prophesied. When Jesus warns against false prophets, he is thus speaking of men, and less often women, who claim authority from God to direct others in their pursuit of heaven. Now you may wonder, 
how could it be that God would call a woman to this? Well, God often calls women to speak. He gives them messages and they apply God's word. We see this throughout scripture. Most particularly, deaconesses would do it with women. And so we'll find women speaking to other women and applying the word of God and they are prophetesses. Halda was a prophetess. But occasionally such a woman will be used to speak to men as well. And that's not outside the realm of God's power. They are not teaching the word of God. They are not established as the authorities, but they will apply the word of God. And I praise God for women in our midst who will act as prophets to the men of our church. I have been confronted by women at times who say the word says this, that's prophecy, and I praise God for it. False prophets are a threat They are false rather than true, not because they never teach truth, but because they claim an authority that God has not granted them, an inspiration that God has not given them. They lead those who follow them into sin, and they are exceedingly common. If they were uncommon, Jesus would not warn against them. But because they are so common, Jesus spends a great deal of his ministry confronting false prophets. Think of all the times that Jesus dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you. Not uncommon, but common in the teaching of Jesus. So we look at the the teaching of this passage and what Jesus says to his disciples and his followers and to the vast number of the crowd. And there are a number of things that we need to recognize and act in accord with that he says. First, it's obviously clear, it should be clear, I hope it's obvious, that the danger of false prophets is real and undeniable. Jesus warns that they exist. Jesus warns that you need to be on guard against false prophets. I live in Waterville on River Road in Waterville. I don't warn my children about the danger of cliffs. There aren't cliffs in Waterville. We do have in our backyard a swimming pool. I warn about the danger of kids being around swimming pools. I say to them, don't you think of going around that pool without your father and your mother there with you or your grandma and your grandfather. You are not to do it. I warn against things that are clear and present dangers, not theoretical dangers. Theoretical dangers are not dangers because they're not present. Prophets, false prophets, false teachers, prophets and false are existent. They are here. They're they're around us and false prophets are a clear and present danger. Second, of course, it's obvious from what Jesus says, that the false prophets come to us clad in sheep's clothing, that they appear in disguise. They come just like Jacob. Jacob pretending to be his, his brother Esau, being a smooth man, not a hairy man, being a man of the indoors rather than the outdoors. So what does he do? He takes, he takes the skin of an animal. He takes the wool of an animal and he puts it on his arms, wraps it around his arms so that when he goes to his blind father, his blind father will smell the smell of the woods and the soil. He'll feel the hair and he'll say, oh, my son Esau. Jacob is seeking to steal the blessing. And so he dresses up as a sheep. He literally puts wool on his arms. Now, if we were honest, we might be inclined to to complain a little bit about the metaphor Jesus uses here. 
We might think it more accurate for Jesus to have said that false prophets come to us in shepherd's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves because the, the shepherds are the leaders, the shepherds are the ones who are to be on guard, and the false prophets are pretending to lead and guard, right? So wouldn't it have been better for Jesus to say they come like shepherds, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves, rather than saying they're sheep who follow? But of course, this is part of the disguise of the false prophet. They don't stand up honestly and claim to be the voice of God. They suggest, like all rebels, they seek to come from underneath. They seek to undermine. They complain about authority. They pretend that they are just members of the flock in common with the rest of the flock under the, under the harsh tutelage, the harsh treatment of the, of the prophets. And so they attack from underneath. They attack God's truth as though they're just mere striplings underneath the teaching of the great ones. Absalom was the archetype of false prophet, the archetype of one of these men. He was actually exactly like them in his rebellion against David, his father. He pretended that he had no authority at all. He said to the people as he stood at the city gates, oh, don't bow down to me. I'm just like you, Kier. Come, you're my brother. Let me give you a kiss. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if our nation had, had a great king who was concerned about you? Someone kind of like me, you know. But, but no, we don't. We're under that harsh king up in his, his throne room at the height of the hill in Jerusalem. And we're just the, the mere underlings. And oh, it's so sad. Oh, it's so hard. I'm just like you. We're under this tyranny. We're under this great tyranny and this great prejudice against us that is the leader that God has put there. And I, I'm just like you, harassed and downtrodden abused by the shepherds of Israel. He has his complaints, doesn't he? He has his complaints against the king. He says, this king, my father, he doesn't love me. He didn't deal with the, the man who, who misused my sister. If you know the story, you know all the complaints Absalom has. Everyone has a complaint against the leader. Absalom's like the rest, he says. I'm a sincere man. I'm a humble man. I'm just like you, false prophets. That's why Jesus says they pretend to be sheep rather than they pretend to be shepherds. Third, Jesus makes clear that false prophets are actually ravenous wolves. <laughs> do, we need to be, do we need to say that ravenous wolves kill? <laughs> that they destroy? Is it not obvious here that Jesus is saying that, that false prophets lead to death? Notice that Jesus never warns his disciples against false kings, false governors, Roman tyranny, the, the travesty of Herod, the Idumean, not even a real Jew, reigning from the throne in Jerusalem. Nah, Jesus never says anything about it, does he? Not a word. Doesn't complain about it. Doesn't tell his disciples to be on guard against it. Never, ever even addresses it but he is constantly warning men against false prophets, false shepherds, those who seek the high places, the exalted seats, those who make a show of prayer, those who think they're better than others. Jesus says, the most those men in authority can do to you is kill your body, don't fear them. But these men, Jesus explicitly calls killers, these false prophets, killers, 
because they destroy what is precious, the human soul. The great threat to our lives and to the bride of Christ is not the king or the government which persecutes, not the sword nor the dungeon, not the gallows nor the pyre. Nothing external can triumph over the bride of Christ, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Jesus makes clear throughout this sermon that the threat we must be on guard against is internal, inside our hearts, inside our church, not external. Our hearts, our pride, our unrighteousness, our hiding of our lamp, that's what makes the church impotent. Not because it's by nature impotent, but because we make it impotent. We hide our lamp under a bushel. We hide our light under a basket. We lose our flavor, becoming like salt that's been cast amidst the the tramplings of the path and it's diluted into nothing so it has no flavor left anymore and of course our submitting to false shepherds our falling into the trap of Satan by heeding men and women who appear to be angels of heaven but who teach the ways of demons this is the cause of the decline of the church this is the cause of human lives being lost Jesus says fourth Jesus warns that the destruction of false prophets the destruction that they cause, not their destruction, is not passively suffered, but it is something that we actively embrace. Now, he also says that the actual destruction of false prophets is something that is done actively by God. So just as they actively seek to destroy, so God is actively opposed to them and inflicts on them what they have actively inflicted on others. In other words, we like to say that false teachers, false prophets suffer the consequences of their own actions and that their followers likewise suffer from the folly of their teachers and their own folly. But that's not the teaching of Christ because in verse 19, Jesus explicitly says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now we're inclined to think that the fruitless lives of those who lead in and those who follow false paths are their own reward, their own punishment. They've chosen fruitlessness, they get to suffer fruitlessness. They've chosen their path, that path becomes their punishment. And it is sad, of course, to live fruitless lives. It's unrewarding, impotent, and tragic. But fruitlessness is not the sum total of what such men and women suffer nor is what they suffer passively received. It is not them bringing it on themselves. The destruction that Jesus speaks of here is active. It's decreed. It's not simply receiving the the obvious fruits of what they've done, the inherent results of their own fruitlessness. It is actively meted out by the wrathful arm of God. God hates false prophets. God hates them with a holy wrath. And those who follow them will suffer the consequences of their following these fruitless, barren prophets. False prophets are not men who are confused or women who are confused. False prophets are not men who have made innocent errors. False prophets are not somewhat helpful and somewhat wrong. False prophets are not just a little bit off. False prophets are not good men with certain failings. False prophets are under the scrutiny and the wrath of God. Jesus warns that punishment is in accord with knowledge. 
And no one knows more truth and rejects truth more boldly than the man or woman who is carefully wrong in his or her representation of God and his word. We are to run from such men. Now, who are these men? How do we know a false prophet? They walk in disguise. Jesus says it very clearly. (laughs) They wear the, the clothing of sheep. How do you know if there's a man around you or a woman around you who's a false prophet? You should know it. Jesus is expecting you to be aware and to be able to recognize. It's interesting to read the reformers in their comments on this passage, especially Martin Luther, the the founder of our Protestant church, and John Calvin, who was a leader in the early days of the Reformation as well, and from whom we have received much of our theology. Luther spends, uh, in his, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, pages, I mean page after page after page on this verse, on these several verses. Page after page, going into depth, naming people, talking about classes of people. I mean, he just goes on and on and on about false prophets and who they are and how you can see them and how you can recognize them. In fact, I think actually he sees so many false prophets that, and he's so willing to name them that at times I think he falls into the trap of, of abusing men who were good men. Calvin does not fall into that trap. Calvin has one paragraph on this. Instead of the the page after page of Martin Luther, Calvin has one paragraph and he says, you will know false prophets because, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's really pretty close. You will know false prophets because they will seek for themselves the glory that is God's alone. Which is true. Um, And there is this this ego, this this self-inflation that's part of all such rebellion against God. All those... Think about the ego that it takes to say, I'm speaking for God, but his word isn't quite, you know, it's not, it's not the way you need to hear it. I'm going to edit God. I'm going to advance a better view of God than he's given us in his word. No matter how unctuous they seem, no matter how, I'm a humble man and I speak of a great God, if they teach something that's against God, that's pride. So Calvin is right in that, but I... I I prefer Luther, because he actually names those who are a danger. Luther says in one very, very colorful section of these pages that he's written on the, this section of the sermon, he quotes a proverb that he says was invented by the priests, and this is it. The proverb is, when the, our Lord God made a priest, the devil was looking on and wanted to imitate him, and he made the tonsure too broad and it turned out a monk. And a tonsure is the, the section of hair and the priest was, was smaller and the, the, the shaved top of the head, that's the tonsure, it's called the, the ring of hair. And what Luther says is that Satan tried to make a priest but he made the tonsure too broad and that's how the, the monks wear them. And it turned out that the the devil's priests are monks. Now he says, therefore they are the devil's creatures. Now this is said by way of a joke. I'm still quoting Luther. But it's nevertheless the pure truth. (laughs) He says, it's a joke, but it's absolutely true. For where the devil sees that God orders obedience and love to one another and constitutes God makes an excellent spiritual little assembly, he, the devil that is, 
when he sees God doing this, something wonderful. He cannot refrain from building his chapel or beer shop alongside the church and also afterwards teaching his monkery. Poverty, gray coats, etc. So that always the monks are the devil's priests for they preach the doctrine of devils as Paul also calls it wrought out of their own imaginings and they claim to be wiser than God and to do his work better than he does. Now, that one little sentence by Calvin, these pages by Luther, but I think Luther is in a sense more like Christ who did not hesitate to name, he didn't name individuals. I don't remember a time when he named an individual, but he did name classes of men that his followers were to be on guard against and have nothing to do with. And that's what Luther is doing here. He's saying be, be on guard against the monks. They teach, but it's false. You remember the time that Jesus responded to the scribes and the Pharisees who came from Jerusalem to complain and criticize his disciples because they failed to keep the traditions of the elders. They were not washing their hands before the meals. Remember that? Remember what Jesus said to them? He answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. So Jesus attacks them. He calls them hypocrites. He quotes the word of God against them. Then he calls the crowd to him and he says, hear and understand. It's not what enters into the mouth that makes a man unclean, but what proceeds out of the mouth. Then the disciples come to him. And what do you think they say? They say, Jesus. Are you aware? Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you, when you said all that? <laughs> Jesus said, no, really? They were offended? Oh, I'm sorry I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I, I better adjust my aim because I certainly didn't. Well, no. He answered and said, I was joking. That's not what Jesus said. He said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. If a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Not a scintilla of apology. Not the slightest sense of backing off. Yes, I meant to speak against those men. Yes, I intended for them to be offended and in a sense, it was the most loving thing he could do for those men to speak as the son of God and say, you're about to be plucked out of the vineyard. You're about probably the only time in their lives they'll hear the truth about who they are and where they're going and what they're doing. How do we know a false prophet? Jesus says, by their fruit, by the consequences of their lives, their work, their lives. And as fruit, we need to be watchful in two areas. First, there is the direct consequence of teaching. Now, of course, to understand this, to see where the teaching deviates from the word of God and where it leads others astray, we have to know the word of God. And so it's vital in assessing men as our pastors that we know the word of God and not just simply be naive, saying, oh, oh, what a nice idea. Oh, you know, I'd never heard that before. It sounds logical. 
We must know the word of God. We must be students of the word. Uh, let, me, let me add at this point <laughs> something that's important. We need to be aware that there is false teaching and it's not false prophecy. There is false teaching. False teaching as done by the prophets went beyond the false teaching that goes on in this pulpit. All right, and what do I mean by that? Well, there is no man on earth who preaches the word of God perfectly. Years ago, I preached one thing about the end times and how Jesus would come, and now I preach something different, and I say something different. One of those two had to be wrong, right? You can't teach two different things at two different points in your life and say, I always teach truth. Now, it's, it's a given that every pastor is going to be wrong and sinfully wrong at times. I've certainly been wrong in my views, and I've said wrong things from this pulpit. I could list other areas like the end times where I've changed in my opinion. I've been sadly wrong as well. I've taught wrong things. But I would not plead guilty to being a false prophet. And my defense against a charge of being a false prophet would be, well, okay, you're right, I'm wrong, and I'm fallible, and I need to understand the word better than I do, but you still are called not to look just to the teaching, but to its fruit. And so I will say wrong things, but has it led others into sin? Has it produced bad fruit in my life, in the lives of those who've followed my teaching? Has it led them into sin? Of course, there are times when I have, by my very teaching and my attitudes, led others into sin. And yet, it's something more than that. I'm not alone in this. A famous pastor out in the West Coast says with total conviction that Christians are not permitted to drink alcohol and that the wine of the Bible was mere watered-down grape juice, not fermented drink, that alcohol is not for the Christian, and it's a view that I think is, is not in accord with the scriptures. I don't think that it can be, can be defended scripturally, honestly. I think it's quite wrong. I think him mistaken. And he's dogmatic about it, so he's dogmatically wrong, as we often are as pastors when we teach what's wrong. But I would never go on to charge that because this man teaches this thing and is famous and leads others to believe as he does that he is thus a false prophet. Why? Because he's not leading people into rebellion against God. He's not saying that we're saved by avoiding alcohol. He's saying God doesn't want you drinking. It leads to drunkenness. Don't drink. The Bible says don't drink. And so I don't view him as a false prophet, and I don't think there's any charge at all that could be made against this teaching because as I look at him in his life, I see it as having almost no effect on the lives of his people, leading them into wrong things, leading him into sin. False teaching bears fruit in sin. This is the first bad fruit we must guard against. So, when we see men teaching today, that in the biblical times, the, the system that was employed and that was prevalent was patriarchy, where men abused women, women where men were, were nasty to women, and we have come over time to understand that the patriarchal views of the Bible are wrong, the Bible endorsed them and embraced them because, well, that's the day they lived in, those who wrote it. But today, we can have women pastors. Today, we can have women as elders. Today, there's no role distinction between man and woman in the home. Then we say, 
This is false teaching and false shepherding and false prophecy because it's a call to rebel against what God has taught. It's a call that teaches the word in a way that directs people into a sinful path. False prophets lead people to sin. Men who suggest that certain sexual sins are too difficult and too ingrained in us, maybe even from birth, to be cured by God, to be done in by the new birth, they are false shepherds and false prophets because they're saying, keep on in your sin. God does not have the power to lead you from it. Men who wink at divorce, men who are proud, who lead other men into pride. Let me tell you, many proud pastors lead others into pride and you need to discern pride. I've I've said on several occasions that I don't think there's a prouder group of stars in Hollywood, a prouder group of politicians in Washington than the typical presbytery where the pastors come together. There is more pride in that presbytery room than there is in the Senate. It is a proud group and pride is damnable. And a proud pastor is an offense against God. False teaching bears fruit in sin. Now let me add that we like the false teaching that we put ourselves under. False teachers prevail because we like what they tell us. We appreciate being granted the permission to do the things they grant us. We are very, very aware of the false prophets that others are likely to fall under and very, very blind to those that we're likely to fall under because we like this form and we don't that. So very few of us are ever going to find ourselves following a Pentecostal pastor who has a church of 20,000, who flies around in his Gulfstream jet and who drives a Rolls Royce because we can see that and we don't like that. That's not the kind of false prophet we're likely to put ourselves under. We are not so aware of our own sinful tendencies. We're not so aware. We need to be on guard against the things we do like. Don't think that because you can see another man's false prophet with 20-20 vision that you aren't susceptible to a very different form of false prophet yourself. The second form of fruit we must examine in the lives of those we place ourselves under is not the consequences of their teaching, but the consequences of their beliefs in their actions. No man can teach well who leads and loves his flock and his family poorly. The Bible tells us that we are to look at the families of our leaders. We are told if they can't lead their family, well, then how are they going to lead the house of God, right? It's obvious. Look at the lives, look at the families. This is how we discern prophets that are worthy and prophets that are unworthy. Do the children love God? Are they, if they're younger, respectful? Is the house in order? These are questions Paul says we should ask before making a man a leader. And they remain questions that we should ask after that man is our leader. Katie Hudson, a young Christian singer, the daughter of a pastor, became Katie Perry when she left her background as a Christian behind. 
And yet her father remains a pastor. A child reveals something about a parent. It's not one for one. But if we see this kind of thing going on in our leadership and it's not confronted by those parents, then we must understand that this is leadership we should not place ourselves under. Beyond the home, what's the atmosphere in the church? A friend of ours, a friend of mine, told me just last week that he's concerned about the church where he goes because he said, there are many, many beautiful young women who don't dress with an abundance of, of clothing and all the pastors are cool dudes and young guys, many of them single. And he said, I just, I fear. Is, when you go to a church, is, is the term chastity a dirty word? Chasteness. Being above reproach. If a chaste attitude is not considered cool, then something's wrong and God is not honored. Finally, we must understand one very obvious truth, and this is not tied to discerning the, the, the false prophet from the, the true prophet, but it is a consequence of it. You must understand that Jesus says here that there is no good fruit that comes from a bad tree. You don't put yourself under a false prophet and benefit 90% of the time or 80% when the, teach, the teaching is true, but have to winnow out the 20% that's bad. What Jesus says is it's either all good or it's all bad. It's not to say that the, the good prophet never sins. He does. But ultimately, there is no good fruit that comes from a false prophet. None. Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, says, even though Jesus seems to make virtually the same point a second time, it's hardly redundant. For in the second time around, he prevents anyone from concluding the evil tree bears evil fruit, but it also bears good fruit, so as to make it difficult to recognize an evil tree because the crop is of two kinds. No, Jesus says, this is not so. For the evil tree bears only evil fruits and would never bear good fruits. So also, it's the same way with the opposite kind of tree. This is an inescapable conclusion from what Jesus has said. We had a video about the pastor's college. I hope that there are many men from this church who attend the pastor's college and who become leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. It's the highest, most glorious calling, and it's not higher than any other in one sense, but I love it. Luther, in this, these pages on this, says, you know what? Let's not pretend that to be a monk is better than to be a, a farmer. He said, if we obey God, that is a high calling. So your calling is great, but the church is dying in America. It is in rough shape because of the lack of godly leaders. We need more churches like Christ the Word. We need more elders. We need more pastors. We need a church which is alive. And I encourage you to think about the pastor's college, to make your goal to lead the bride of Christ, to be a prophet who teaches God's truth.